Well, join me in Job 22 if you have your Bible. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. Uh, you can go out the doors at the end, and there's a, a brand new Bible that we have for you that we would love for you to have. Uh, have you ever been with someone at the exact moment that they received such devastating news that they just collapsed and fell to the ground in agony? If you have, you, you know it's, it's a heartbreaking, a gut-wrenching thing uh, to witness. Have you ever seen someone in such agony and grief that they were so overwhelmed with pain that they were literally shaking, physically shaking, uh, because of just the anguish they were suffering? Uh, have you ever been with someone and they've received such crushing news that they, they literally start screaming and they can't stop screaming? Talking to a woman recently who said she was with someone right after they had received such terrible news, and, and all this woman could do was just scream out in pain. If you've ever experienced any of those situations, you know the, the sense of helplessness you feel, and, and there's, a, there's a desire, and I think it's a good, it's a natural desire. We want to provide some helpful counsel, some good words. We want to have something to say that, you know, that might ease the pain. And you know, you feel that pressure to say something, to do something to help in that moment. If you haven't been in that, that situation, maybe think through, what would you do? What would you say if someone were so overwhelmed uh, with pain that they could not even speak to you? Well, all the things that I mentioned happened to Job, uh, who was a, man who, a prominent man who lived in the ancient Near East some 3,700 years ago. We don't know exactly when. Um, he got the news that pretty much everything that he loved and cared about was gone in an instant. And he collapsed in agony, screamed out uh, in pain and anguish, actually got to the place where he wished he'd never even been born. That's how low he got. Only Job's friends, they didn't really consider so much how helpful their counsel would be. They didn't really uh, think through what they might say. Instead, they blasted Job with painful correctives that added insult to injury. After sitting with Job a week in silence, which was the best thing they did, they then had their own responses and their own answers as to why Job was suffering. And they each, each of Job's friends took, took three turns speaking at Job, confronting him. Um, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar took turns sharing their opinions in three cycles. So the first cycle we see in chapters 4 through 14, uh, again, all three friends, they come at Job and then Job responds. Uh, the second cycle, chapters 15 through 21, and then the third cycle, chapters 22 through 25. And in chapter 32, we'll get there in a week or two, but uh, this mysterious guy, Elihu, who comes, and he actually confronts Job's friends, and then he confronts Job himself, and Job doesn't even respond to Elihu, at least we don't have anything recorded. After that, uh, God would speak. Now, you may have noticed that we're not covering every verse or every chapter of Job, not even every speech by every person. That's not because these speeches aren't worth uh, reading in their entirety, or it's not because we should skip them in our regular Bible reading. But uh, for the sake of a sermon series, there's a lot of repetition, a lot of the same themes, a lot of the same answers by Job's friends. Um, and, you know, when you're preaching through the wisdom literature, which is like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job uh, fits in that category, it's often not really, it's not easy, it's not even prudent at times to try to preach verse by verse. Can you imagine 
a series through the book of Proverbs, 915 verses, and you know most of the Proverbs seem to be randomly uh, placed, and so it's not really, it's better often to take a more thematic view than kind of a verse-by-verse approach. Pastor scholar Douglas O'Donnell, who's written a masterful commentary on Job, writes, a verse-by-verse exposition through the entire book is possible, but perhaps not profitable in a congregational setting. And so what I've tried to do is it's a bit thematic, you know, but we're looking at some of the, we're looking at every, you know, speech from every friend, um, at least one, and, and two from others, and then we're looking at Job's responses, and then we'll come back, we'll, we'll get to the place where God himself uh, will speak. And, and actually, shortly after Easter, we're going to start a new expositional series through the book of Romans, and in that, we're going to really slow way down, and we'll take shorter sections, we'll, you know, truly cover it in a verse-by-verse fashion, uh, but... I just felt like for the book of Job, you know, we, we would cover it in 16 to 18 weeks. So that's what we're doing. So far in our study, we've, we've looked at both the first and second cycle of Job's friend's speeches. And again, the friends basically all say the same thing. They say, look, uh, good people get good things from God, and bad people get bad things from God. And since you've gotten really bad things from God, you must necessarily be a really, really bad person. And they go to explain to Job uh, why they believe that he's such a terrible person. And as we've said before, you know, it's, it's, we may think that, we may hear the, that, that counsel and kind of balk at it, but it's actually pretty easy to very subtly embrace this idea that if things are going really well in our lives, then it's necessarily because we've been unusually good and God is blessing us. You know, you, you pull up to your favorite, um, your favorite store, which is always crowded when you go, and there's a spot right in the very front right next to the entrance, and you pull up into that front, that's that uh, parking spot, and you can't help but think, well, this must be because I did my Bible reading today, or I did my prayer time today, or whatever. It's just a natural way that we think. And of course, the flip side is also true. If, if we're hit with a barrage of negative things, it's very difficult for us not to immediately go there, to go to the place where we say, well, this is because I haven't been spending time uh, in the Bible like I should, or my prayer life has been short or abbreviated or whatever it is. In so many ways, I think, in ways we would never articulate, we do actually kind of buy into this karmic uh, way of thinking. Well, that was the, jo- the, friend, the mindset of Job's friends. This morning, we move on to the third cycle of speeches. And by this point, all three of Job's friends have come at him twice. And both times, Job's, Job has responded. Now, the third wave of, of, of Job's friends speeches begin. So we're going to look at chapters 22 and 23, but as I mentioned, we won't cover every single uh, verse. Job 22, let me begin by reading verses 1 through 4. The word of the Lord reads this way, Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Can a man be profitable to God? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right? Or is it gain to him If you make your ways blameless, is it for your fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you? So we've spent, by the way, we have communion that we're going to celebrate in just a few moments at the end of the service. So we only have two points this morning, but we've spent a lot of time, you know, in this series confronting Job's friend's bad theology. Uh, Most notably, as I've mentioned, that sort of retribution theology or moralizing suffering or whatever we want to call it, where exactly as I just described, good things 
you know, good people get good things and bad people get bad things and so on. So we've, we've spent time correcting that and trying to establish a, a better theology of suffering. But now Job's friend Eliphaz will introduce a new stream of bad theology. And he asks the question, is God ever really pleased with our obedience anyway? Does God take pleasure in our good works or even notice them for that matter? What Eliphaz says in verse 3 is, your obedience brings God no pleasure. And in this speech by Eliphaz, his third, he refers to God as the Almighty five times in this one speech, more than any other place where he offers counsel. And he's, he's, he's emphasizing or really doubling down on the distance between the Creator and the created, between God and Job, which is true. There is an infinite chasm between this Creator God, this Holy God, and, and the created ones. But Eliphaz then concludes that there's nothing that man can do that, would, that this transcendent God would ever actually delight in. But strangely enough, Eliphaz would then go on to emphasize that God cares very deeply about our disobedience. So one commentator sums up Eliphaz's argument like this, even though God could not care less about Job's supposed holiness, he somehow and for some reason notices his wickedness. So we talk all the time here, and for good reason, I think, about how our view of God, our what we call our theology proper, our understanding of God, shapes and informs everything about us. It, it impacts our relationships. It impacts the way that we pray. Uh, it informs the way that we worship. Uh, it, it, it certainly informs the way that we handle suffering, the way that we approach vocation, our job, the way that we understand pleasure. And we could go on and on. So the way that we understand God has tremendous implications for every aspect of our lives. Well, imagine if you believed that God is up in heaven and He never sees anything, never notices anything good you do, doesn't really care that you do good things, but man, as soon as you mess up, as soon as you sin, as soon as you violate His holy law, He pays very close attention and He is quick to respond. Now, if that were your view of God, that would really change the way that we worship, wouldn't it? That would change the way that we live. We certainly would live, I think, in a great deal of fear. It would change uh, how eagerly we want to approach that God. certainly would, would decrease any sort of intimacy uh, with God. Um, it would almost, I think, certainly create some bitterness in our hearts toward God. If we believe that God doesn't care at all about what we do, anything, the good things we do, but man, he really pays attention to the bad things. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that my oldest son uh, is finishing up his three-year seminary degree, it's a three-year, doing it in three years and finishing up in May. And someone asked me genuinely, and I think, you know, it really it was a great question, said basically, well, why not get out there and just start doing ministry? You know, I mean, why spend three years studying languages and, and theology and church history and, and ministry and so on. And I think the answer is there's, there's nothing necessarily wrong with getting out there right away and doing ministry. In fact, hopefully even everybody who's in seminary is doing ministry. Um, but depending upon especially your 
specific role or calling, that solid theological foundation is of paramount importance. Because there's actually, there's no greater harm can be done to a church, and I would even say even more than moral scandal, than bad theology. Because bad theology will lead slowly and steadily lead a church to utter ruin. Throughout history, when, whenever someone or even a group of people react strongly against an ideology or a thought, a new thought, developing thought, there is, and we know this even in our parenting, in our own lives, when we strongly react to something, there's a tendency to, to overreact. It's just sort of a natural inclination. Well, among those of us who want to so desperately to preserve the purity of the gospel against moralism and against works righteousness, we, we strive to make it abundantly clear without any doubt or uh, you know, mystery. There's nothing we could ever do to earn our salvation. So you've heard that from every pastor. You've probably heard it from every elder. There's nothing we can do to ever earn our salvation. There's nothing we could ever do by which we could gain God's favor or make it into heaven. That's an important theological reality. Even our best works are filthy rags before the Lord in terms of their saving power. Now, some who emphasize that, and I've probably fallen into this camp myself, and all of that that I said is true, some who emphasize that have overreacted to moralism and works righteousness, and said, or at least implied, that God is never pleased with anything we do, but is only pleased with Jesus in us. In other words, if you are in Christ, God loves you, He's forever pleased with you, but not because of anything you've done or could ever do. He doesn't see any of that. He only sees Christ in you. Well, not exactly. I mean, yes, but not exactly. Do our actions ever please God? Does God ever see something we do and actually take delight in it? To put it another way, is there anything we can do to please God? And the answer is an emphatic yes, uh, but with a footnote or two. And here's what I mean. The, the unregenerate person, so the unbeliever, the person who's never put his or her faith in Christ, never repented from sin, trusted in Jesus, cannot muster one single action that would bring God pleasure. It doesn't mean they can never do something that, you know, is helpful to society or, you know, that, that's, that's good in terms of the way they relate to other people. But because of their, their status, their condition of being in Adam, at the deepest level of their being, they're living in active and re rebellion against God, unreconciled to God and under God's wrath. So the person who is outside of Christ never trusted in Jesus, cannot muster one single action that brings God pleasure. But such is not the case with the believer, one who has a heart that's been made alive spiritually. The one who is trusted in Jesus has been reconciled to God and is now indwelled by Christ Himself. Now certainly, those of us we are in Christ, we still have the baggage of the flesh. So uh, even our best works are stained with sin, we, we deal with the residue of the old nature, and thus we are tempted daily or really every moment to forget Christ and to live in our own strength. This is why the Bible contains so many exhortations to abide in Him, to pursue Christ, 
to pursue righteousness and holiness, to walk by the Spirit, etc. But the fact that Christ lives in us means that God actually delights in our good works. He is pleased with them. He accepts them in Christ. Consider what the Apostle Paul says to the Christians at Colossae. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Uh, Or reflect on what the writer of Hebrews instructs. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So here's what that ultimately means. The God who has accepted us in Christ by faith, the God who needs nothing, not even our good works, is actually pleased by our obedience. I've never seen it explained any better than in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which reads this way. Notwithstanding the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in Him, not as though they were in this life holy, unblameable, and improvable in God's sight, but that He, looking upon them in His Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. All that to say, Job's friends have now taken a new turn in terms of their bereft theological uh, sort of wisdom. And that what they're saying is, right: if, if you have been reconciled to God by faith in Jesus, then Jesus sees your good works and delights in them, not because you're perfect or pure or your works are perfect or pure, but He notices them, He accepts them, and He takes pleasure in them because of Christ. Here's our first of two points. When God sees our sincere good works, though never perfectly good, He delights in them and in us because of Christ, because of Jesus. Now, I have to say this, and I, I, I fear that I'm going to muddy the waters. I don't, I don't want to. There is a sense in which God is always delighting in us, those who are in Christ. When He sees us, He sees us as those who are covered by the blood of Jesus, as those who are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So positionally, we might say, we will always be the objects of His unchanging affection. But that doesn't mean that what we do doesn't matter. Sometimes we uh, Christians of a certain tradition, I put myself in that camp, feel like we have to completely denigrate everything we do as Christians. And to be sure, let me just say it again, our works can never merit our salvation. Righteousness is not something God finds in us by our works, but it is actually something He gives to us in Christ by faith. So even our good works are always tainted with sin and never perfectly good. That's true. And yet, if you are a Christian, you can know with assurance that God not only delights in you and all the things that make you, you, but He also delights in your good works, which you can only do in the Spirit's power and because of the indwelling presence of Christ. Now, I feel like, as my South African friends would say, we've been flogging this dead horse for too long. But this is a very, very important, especially in light of theological literature that's coming out, especially in light of podcasts that you may like to listen to. 
it's very important that we know, yes, we can never do anything by which God would say, now you're good in my sight. Now I, you're, you belong to me and I'm saving you. But at the same time, for those who are in Christ, God actually delights in our good works, in our obedience as he sees us you know, in Christ. So up to this point, Job's friends have basically called out Job for his general wickedness. Now look at 22 verses 4 through 11. Is it for your fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you? Is not your evil abundant? There's no end to your iniquities. For you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. You've given no water to the weary to drink and you have withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land. This is talking about Job. And the favored man lived in it. You have sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore, snares are all around you, and sudden terror overwhelms you, or darkness so that you cannot see, and a flood of water covers you. So up to this point, Job's friends have said, they've just said, yeah, you're, you're just an evil person. You are generally a wicked and evil and rebellious person. They haven't been specific. And now they actually go even deeper with some specificity, and they say, look, here you were, you were this powerful man. Everybody knew you, everybody respected you, and you didn't even have time to care for the least of these. You couldn't even look out for the fatherless in their distress. You couldn't even provide water for those who were thirsty. You could not even help those who were in need. You didn't care about anybody but your own family, Eliphaz says. Your evil was so abundant that you let people die of thirst when you had plenty of water and you couldn't even be moved by the struggles of the widows around you and you let orphans go away hungry. Now, there's nothing in this whole story, there's nothing in the text that suggests that this is actually a fair criticism at all. Um, but Job's friends have reached a new low now they're actually accusing Job of very specific things, things that they have ostensibly never seen in Job, uh, but this is where they go. Now let's, let's get, jump over to Job's response, 23 verses 1 through 7. Then Job answered and said, Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, speaking of God, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he, what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. As I mentioned last week, Job devotes a good portion of his speeches, probably more words uh, directed toward the bogus counsel of his friends. And he says, how could you treat me like this? I mean, we're supposed to be friends. And this is what you're saying to me? This is your counsel to me? So much of what he says has to do with his, his friends and, and what they say to him. And then sprinkled in between his rebukes to his friends and his cries for help, Job turns to the Lord. So he addresses one of his friends, turns to the Lord, addresses a couple of his friends, turns to the Lord. And sometimes those complaints to the Lord are actually visceral. I mean, they are just passionate. And he is just on fire emotionally as he, as he cries out and laments to the Lord. And sometimes 
they're, they're softer. Uh, have you ever, and I'm sure you have because I've mentioned this before, seen those progressive commercials which, you know, teach you how not to be like your parents, right? Well, there's one, and they've been on, I've been watching some college basketball this weekend, and they're on constantly during, you know, during college basketball. And there's one that says, you know, the, the, the skit basically says, don't ever leave, leave a voicemail. Who leaves voicemails? Just send a text. Well, my mom, being very forward-thinking uh, and progressive in her approach, she never leaves me voicemails, but she does text me uh, all the time. And the thing is with, with the text from my mom is they're, they're typically completely and totally random. And what I mean by that is we, we'll have not talked for a week or texted for a week, and I'll get just a text out of the blue that I don't understand at all. Like I got this one uh, recently. This was just a pic that she sent me with no explanation, and, and I'm like, like I, 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 what do I do with that? I don't know what to do with that. So I just stared at it, and, then she, and so I said, Mom, I need, I need a little more. Like, I need some more. And so she texted me and said, oh, that's, today's Gene Hackman's birthday. He's 93. I'm like, well, I don't know why. Like, why should I care about that? I mean, was I supposed to get him something? Why would you send me that? Um, so it's just like the other day I got a text from her that said, I hadn't talked to her in a couple days. Nothing about this. She said, Matt Walsh is not harming kids. He's protecting them. I thought, like, I have no idea what that means. I literally have no idea what that means. Have I ever said anything to you about Matt Walsh? Have I ever said that he's harming kids? I never have, I promise you. And then a couple of days ago, I got a text that just said, totally out of the blue, A Few Good Men is the best movie ever made. And that's, I mean, that, that may be true. My mom likes Jack Nicholson and Tom Cruise's actors. Well, there's a scene in that movie where, and if you've seen the movie, you probably recall, um, Tom Cruise, uh, his second chair is played by Demi Moore. She's, she's having her time to shine in, in her argument, and she goes you know, at the judge, and the judge dismisses her objection right, right away, and she says, no, no, Your Honor, I strenuously object. Remember that? And uh, so the co-counsel played by Kevin Pollack looks at her and said, I strenuously object? Like, is that how you're going to go about this? Well, that was a long setup for this, what I'm about ready to say here. But um, Job, there are times when he objects to the Lord, and there's a civility to it. There's a softness to it. And then there's a time when he strenuously objects. He says, God, why? Why would you do this to me? You are crushing me. My bones ache. I get no sleep. I can't eat. My friends hate me. Why would you do this to me? Well, Job has objected to God's treatment. And now he comes back to a more reflective, softer tone. He envisions coming before God in the courtroom, presenting his case to God the judge. And he says, yeah, I know, verse 6, God would pay attention to me. I know that God would listen to me. I know that God would see me. And that he would acquit me of any wrongdoing. Now, it shouldn't surprise us, by the way, that Job has these extreme highs and extreme lows. I mean, this is the way it goes with, with grieving. When a person suffers horrible loss, you can watch this happen. And you maybe experience it yourself. There's times of, of laughter and joy. And there's time, there are times of just, I mean, just spontaneous sobbing and weeping and pain and agony. So Job has his highs and he has his lows, which are to be expected. What he wants more than anything is to present his case before God, but he can't find God. God won't answer him yet. 
Look at verses 18 or 8 through 14 and 23. Behold, I go forward, but he's not there. I go backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his ways and not turned aside. I've not departed from the commandment of his lips. I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. That he says, but he is unchangeable. And who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. For he will complete what he appoints for me. And many such things are in his mind. So Job says, Man, I, I just want to see God. But I look to the left and he's not there. And I search everywhere and he's not there. But he knows where I am. I just can't find him. But in the absence of God's presence, Job begins to think about the character of God. Now, what does he reflect on? First of all, God's immutability. Verse 13, but he is unchangeable. God's character is fixed. He's not up and down. He doesn't waffle. He's not mercurial. He's not a shadowy, uh, James would say. He is immutable. He doesn't change. What else does Job reflect on? God's omnipotence. His mighty power, verse 13b. And who can turn him back? God has no rivals, no equals, no competitors. He alone is God. And then Job reflects on God's absolute sovereignty, uh, verse 13c. What he desires, that he does. God is in control of all things. And if you think God's sovereignty comes up a lot in our preaching, it comes up a lot in the Bible. God is sovereign over all of it. He's sovereign over everything. Verse 14, will he will, for he will complete what he appoints for me. And many such things are in his mind. So this is where this gets really fascinating. Job, he, he recognizes God's sovereignty. He understands that, Job, that God has decreed whatsoever shall come to pass. And that nothing happens apart from God's sovereign will. But what does that do for Job? It doesn't comfort him. It terrifies him. Look at verses 15 through 17. Therefore, I am terrified at his presence. When I consider, I am in dread of him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet I am not silenced because of the darkness, nor because thick darkness comes over my face. As I mentioned, Job, he's up and down. He's all over the place. He longs to see God, but when he thinks about actually seeing God, the sovereignty of God, the power of God, it fills him with terror. So maybe he doesn't want to see God after all. He doesn't know. Throughout this series, we've talked about how to view God and how to think about our own suffering, how to help others who are suffering. If you get the old church email, I sent out uh, some thoughts on that a few weeks ago on how do we help somebody who's hurting? What do we say to them? How do we respond to them? Um, and a point that I made was that, well, we, even though we're so inclined to do this, and I personally want to do this so badly, we really want to avoid platitudes. You know, we often say, this too shall pass. How do we know that? It doesn't for everybody. Some people, they just get worse and worse and worse, and then they die. Or we say, you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Well, how do we know that's not an oncoming train about, about to de destroy the person? Or we say, it'll all work out in the end. But what if it doesn't? 
What if it doesn't work out in the end? Now, of course, we know for believers, ultimately, it will. Sometimes those platitudes can even be biblical truths that are offered at the wrong moment or without the proper context. One thing we say to people all the time is, when they're going through pain and suffering, well, God is sovereign. Yes, but that alone doesn't help me. The very fact that God is sovereign alone is no comfort. If It's only comforting if God is sovereign and good. If He's sovereign and loving. If God were a malevolent dictator, would it ease my pain to know that He's sovereign? Charles Spurgeon famously said, God's sovereignty is the pillow on which I lay my head at night. And I've used that quote a few times over the years, and I agree with it, but with an asterisk by it. In order for God's sovereignty to be helpful, it must be understood in light of His goodness. People sometimes point to Isaiah as the prophet of God's sovereignty. And praise God, he is that. You read the uh, chapters 41 through 48 or 49, and God's sovereignty is presented in a way that's fresh and invigorating and, and, and just enthralling, the sovereignty of God. People say, yeah, Isaiah is the prophet of God's sovereignty. And yes, chapters 41 through 48, they talk about God's absolute control over all things past, present, and future. But was that what God gave Isaiah confidence? Not by itself it wasn't. It was this, Isaiah 40. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are young. In Job 23, Job first takes confidence in his own righteousness. He says, look, I know when I see God, I'm going to be proved right. I'm going to be proved innocent. But then he realizes that won't be enough. So then Job focuses on the, his mind on the sovereignty of God, but that just fills him with fear. Ultimately, it will only be God's sovereignty and goodness that calms the frightened heart. And where is God's sovereignty and goodness on display most clearly? Certainly at the cross of Jesus Christ, where according to God's definite plan, His infinite wisdom, His own sovereign design, and His amazing love, God's Son would die for sinners. Here's our second and final point this morning. God's sovereignty, not our perceived righteousness, is our comfort, but only in light of the cross. You know, it's a natural thing to want to figure out why we're going through what we're going through. It's a totally uh, understandable thing. It's a human thing to want answers. But human wisdom can never plumb the depths of the suffering we experience of human suffering. It's just too limited. Human wisdom is too limited. But that doesn't stop us from trying to come up with answers anyway. Too often, again, we offer platitudes as a comfort to those in pain. What does God offer? So far, He's offered silence. A deafening silence that could actually make us question His goodness. But it's in the silence that we discover His kindness, His mercy, his grace. It's there when we desperately want God to say something, anything to us. We want God to answer the why question that He leads us away from the chorus of human voices to the only word that matters, and that is the Word made flesh, 
In the cross, we see God's powerful and undeniable love. It was God's love that compelled him, so to speak, to send his son as our substitute, so that, so that by believing on his son, we could be made whole, forgiven, brought into the family of God, and promised a glorious future. If I can paraphrase Martin Luther, Christ was given not for our imaginary transgressions, but for our mountainous sins. Not for one or two, but for all. Not for sins that can be discarded, but for sins that are stubbornly ingrained. It's easy to think when we talk about God's wrath against mankind, being satisfied by the crosswork of His Son, and God's holiness demanding justice and accounting, it's easy for us to think that Jesus really loves us, but the Father, He just kind of tolerates us. But the Gospel of John disabuses us of that notion repeatedly. How many times are we told that the Father sent the Son because of His love for the world? God's love is so great that He spared no expense, so to speak, to bring His children to Himself. God's love for us means that He not only desires what's best for us, that He will never wrong us, that He never has wronged us, but that He has a future in store for us that we cannot even fully imagine for those who belong to Him. But only with that recognition of God's goodness and His, and His amazing love is God's absolute sovereignty a comfort and not a terror. Job doesn't realize it. Spoiler alert for those of you who don't know the story, if there's anyone in here. God will actually return to Job everything he lost and then some. But even if he didn't give Job everything on this earth, God's love is never in question nor his plan to do us good. The cross is the evidence, the resurrection, the proof. Just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, so will we be. Just as Christ received glory, so will we. Just as Christ will live with God forever in a resurrected body, so will we. This is God's sovereign plan for us, a plan born of love. Let's pray.